0: Chapter Five of Cut by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Doubt not that I have counted well the cost. Colonel Stukely rode slowly along the top of the ridge, looking for the sandy hillock to leeward of that cluster of rugged firs where Grace and he had seen the vagabond lying. He found that particular hillock easily enough. There were the prints of horses' hoofs to show him the way, but the man was gone. He rode all over the common, round and about, looking for him, almost as closely as the hounds would have hunted for a fox, but there was no sign of a human creature sheltering behind any of the fir's bushes or in any of those hollows. He heard the hounds winding round the base of the hill, and went zigzagging down to find Grace in a field at the bottom. The fox had gone to ground, and the huntsmen were getting the hounds together to go back to the kennels, digging out not being counted as a virtue in this district. Mr. Colchester was in high spirits, his young hounds had worked admirably, and he had been with Grace almost all the morning. It was only nine o'clock now, they would be back in time for a lateish breakfast. Grace and her father had dismounted, and were standing side by side while the grooms eased the saddles. Grace gave a little appealing look at the colonel, which he answered by a grave shake of the head. "'You'll come back to breakfast with us, Colchester,' said Sir Alan. "'We are nearer than the manor, and it may be the last time we shall breakfast together for five or six months.' "'The last time,' gasped Colchester. "'What do you mean?' "'Lady Darnall is ordered to the south for the winter, and we are all off as soon as ever we can start.' "'All? You and Lady Darnall, I suppose?' "'And Grace. Grace is going with us.' "'What, are you going to lose the hunting, just when Sir Alan has brought you that perfect mare, and with poor old blackbird fit as a fiddle, too? How can you, Miss Darnall?' "'Yes, it's very sad, isn't it?' murmured Grace, hardly knowing what she was saying, her mind full of that figure lying against the heathy knoll, that rusty velveteen jacket, that battered, old felt, wide-awake, the very image of destitution and decay. Her lover, her plighted lover, the man for whose sake she had renounced all the rest of mankind, binding herself by a lifelong vow. And then she glanced shyly at the master of the hounds, trotting beside her along the rustic lane." The frank, manly face, the bright English complexion, the look of gentle blood, the clear outlook of eyes which had never feared the face of a foe. And she knew in her heart of hearts that this man cared for her above all women. "'Are you really going?' he asked ruefully. "'Really and truly,' she said. "'But it is not for so very long. We shall come back in the spring as soon as the weather is mild enough for Lady Darnall.' "'Not before May,' said Sir Alan. "'Our climate is not to be trusted before May.' "'And May is about the most treacherous month in the year,' interjected the colonel. "'Never put your trust in May. All the old English saws tell you that.' "'And you are going to Italy,' said Edward Colchester, growing more and more despondent, "'and there are these cursed hounds to tie a fellow by the leg. What part are you going to?' He had not been much of a continental traveller, a fortnight in Paris being his largest idea in that line. He had boasted that Scotland and Ireland were good enough for his holiday ground. Why go to Norway to fish for salmon, when one could have better fishing at Connemara, among a people who spoke one's mother tongue, more or less? Edward Colchester had the sturdy, true-blue British temperament, and thought that if God had given him a fortune, it was his duty to spend it in his own country.' and he did spend liberally in the place where he was born. The manor was maintained in noble style, chiefly for the advantage of three maiden aunts, his own habits being of the simplest. The bulk of the expenses of the kennels fell upon him, for although ostensibly a subscription pack, the wilton Moore hounds must have gone on very short commons, and the wilton huntsmen must have ridden sorry cattle had they depended on the liberality of the neighborhood. "'What's part of Italy?' inquired Mr. Colchester as he jogged along by Grace's side. "'I think father said we were going to the lakes.' "'Como, and that kind of thing. "'Ah, very nice, I dare say.' Any salmon, I wonder. Well, Miss Darnall, as I have never seen Italy, I'll run over and join you for a fortnight or so in April, if Sir Allan would let me. You would find it very dull, I am afraid, replied Grace, sadly. We are not going for sightseeing or gaiety, but solely on account of Lady Darnall's health. I shouldn't care how quiet you might be, I should go to see Italy, and you. I say, Colchester, where did you get that chestnut the Whip Road this morning? asked Sir Allan, and the master was obliged to leave Grace aside to talk to her father. Grace fell back directly, and began to question the colonel. "'How dreadful,' she said, when he told her of his failure, "'if he should go away from the neighborhood without help, "'penniless, starving, perhaps. "'No fear of that, I think. "'You may depend he has come to this neighborhood "'meaning to get help, and from you. "'Poor Grace, you will hear of him soon enough, be sure, "'but whenever he does approach you, "'mind you refer him to me. "'How unkindly do you speak of him, Colonel, "'as if he were my enemy? "'How can I think of him except as your enemy, "'a penniless adventurer who inveigles a schoolgirl "'into an engagement which he knows she can only keep "'at the sacrifice of her prospects in life?' He did not inveigle me, I was very foolish, perhaps, but I acted of my own free will. And you have no right to call him an adventurer, just because he is poor and because you see him for the first time under very humiliating circumstances,' said Grace, plucking her handkerchief out of the pigskin to dry a sudden rush of tears. "'I do not believe that any industrious, well-meaning young man would fall so low, Grace. There is a providence for struggling youth, and when a young fellow drops below the level of his own class, be sure there is generally a good reason for the fall. You saw this fellow in Paris, painting for a livelihood.' You say he has the education of a gentleman, and that he paints well. Such a man has no right to be lying on Chicksand common, dressed like a tramp. It may be a disguise, said Grace, more and more indignant. Besides, you ought to remember that it is sometimes more difficult for a gentleman to keep his head above water than for an agricultural labourer or a mechanic. Somebody says that the high roads in Australia are made by university men. Education is a drug in the market everywhere. The young man looks disreputable and dissipated. He looks very ill, said Grace. "'If he comes to Darnall this afternoon, you had better take him straight to the drawing-room and introduce him to Sir Allan as your affianced husband, since you are so confident about him,' retorted the colonel, getting angry. "'That means that you wash your hands of me and my troubles,' said Grace, piteously. "'It means that I will help you if I possibly can, but I will not encourage you in a folly, a mistaken sense of honour and self-sacrifice. I love you so well, Grace, that if I thought this man were worthy of you, granting him to be a pauper, and if I knew your heart was set upon marrying him, I would use my strongest endeavours to reconcile your father to a bad match.' But I have a shrewd suspicion that the man is a scamp and a scoundrel, and I am very sure that in your heart of hearts you don't care a straw for him. So I shall make it my business to arrange matters civilly and liberally with the gentleman, and if you are only good and submissive, I believe I shall be able to tell you in a week that you are as free as the air. Dear, dearest Colonel, cried Grace, forgetting herself, but you will not behave unkindly to poor Victor. I mean to treat him very handsomely. I will give him a fair start, with a nice sum in hand, and in a new country at a considerable distance from Darnell Park. But that will take a heap of money.' The money shall be forthcoming, you and I can swear accounts when you are of age. My best of friends. And when all is settled, and your Parisian friend has returned you those foolish letters, you can go to Sir Allan and tell him all about it very quietly, and then your mind will be at ease ever afterward. It will be dreadful to tell papa, said Grace ruefully, he will preach me such a sermon. Even a sermon may be endured from so good a father, replied the colonel with a kindly smile, and, after all, sermons are good things in their way. Yes, I will tell him all, Godfather, when Victor has released me from my promise, and if you should send me a letter or come to the house, which he could hardly do, poor fellow in that dreadful coat, I will let you know directly. They put their horses at a trot, and followed Sir Ellen and young Colchester, who had got a good start of them by this time, and there was no more confidential talk between Grace and her Godfather. The dining-room at Darnall looked a delightful haven after a morning in dewy fields and damp copses, on breezy commons and over wide uplands. The old hearth, with its dog-stove and brass furniture, the hissing urn, the loaded sideboard, the table bright with chrysanthemums and scarlet geraniums, and the fine old Swansea breakfast service, everything looked inviting, while the mistress of the house, in her neat olive-green cashmere gown and linen collar, was the most charming object in the room. Lady Darnall was not one of those picturesque matrons who come to breakfast in a flowing satin robe, trimmed with ostrich plumage. She had not yet risen to that loose and shapeless splendor of attire which takes its inspiration from Japanese screens and finds its material in oriental bazaars. Neat and trim and thoroughly English, she smiled upon her husband in a gown which might have cost from two to three pounds. These plain toilets only vexed Dora Darnall, who had secret yearnings for the Japanese and had not courage to indulge them in the face of Lady Darnall's simplicity. Her mind was also exercised as to what Lady Darnall did with her pin-money, which was large. She certainly did not spend it on dress, and if she disposed of it in works of charity, she was verily and indeed one of those excellent Christians whose left hand knows not what the right hand gives. Dora had discussed this subject many a time and oft with her particular friends, those people who had held themselves a little aloof from Lady Darnall, but who still adored Sir Alan's incomparable sister. "'My conviction is that Lady Darnall is making a purse,' she would conclude solemnly, as if it were altogether iniquitous to make purses. "'But why, my dear Dora, why should she do that, when you tell me Sir Alan has provided handsomely for her in the event of his death?' asked her friend. "'Most handsomely,' said Dora. "'But for all that I believe she is making a purse. Some women are born misers.' Clare Darnall had not the air of a woman of miserly soul, as she sat at the head of the table this morning dispensing tea and coffee and smiling upon her adoring husband, who had seated himself by her side. She looked brighter and happier than she had looked for a long time. The prospect of escape from her narrow surroundings, the idea of travelling with the man she tenderly loved among new and beautiful scenes, was full of delight. She was not a weak woman, and she had met the coldness of her husband's old acquaintances with a quiet scorn. She despised them for misjudging her, despised them for their inability to accept her for her own sake, for their petty prejudices and suspicions. She knew that she might have been one of the worst women in England, her sins only falling short of law-court exposure, and yet if she had come to Darnall Park as the daughter of a great house, a personage, the county would have opened its arms to receive her. But she came to Darnall as a nobody, and all manner of evil was suspected about her. She had borne her isolation without a murmur, for she was a woman of infinite resources, and was in no wise dependent upon society for amusement or happiness. But she had been deeply grieved by the knowledge of her husband's pain at the unfriendliness of those whom he had counted as his friends.' And to turn her back upon this trouble, to go among strangers in strange scenery, to escape from those cold critical glances of Dora Darnell's, this was indeed delight, such delight that the thought of it made her for the moment forgetful of a deeper, darker trouble which had been weighing her to the ground of late, the one heavy burden of her life, a burden that she had set herself to endure in secret. That breakfast, after the cub-hunting, was a most genial meal. Edward Colchester was as hungry as the proverbial hunter, and eat and talked with the most cheerful clatter, his talk naturally being a recapitulation of the morning's work and of other mornings, what they had done and what they ought not to have done, whether one particular fox was the hunted fox or a new fox, a point nicely debated, as exemplified by the conduct of the said fox, between Mr. Colchester and the colonel. Even Grace brightened and joined in the conversation and showed herself wonderfully o' faith as to the little ways and devices of old dog-foxes and the haunts and manners of cubs." "'You have such eyes!' exclaimed Colchester rapturously. "'I believe you know every earth within thirty miles. "'I ride and drive about a good deal, and one cannot help using one's eyes,' said Grace modestly. "'I know you have helped me to find some of our best foxes,' replied Colchester. "'By the by, there is fox-hunting somewhere near Rome, isn't there?' "'In the Campagna,' suggested the Colonel. "'Well, now, if their season only began after ours was over, I might meet you in Rome, Sir Alan, and we might have some sport in the Campagna, eh?' asked Colchester. "'It would be delightful, but I'm afraid an Italian April would be too warm for hunting.' "'By Jove, we have some deuced hot days here before we leave off,' said Colchester. "'But hunting or no hunting, I shall join you in the spring, if you'll have me.' "'We shall be charmed to have you,' said Lady Darnall. "'Quite a family party,' sneered Dora. She was just young enough to be jealous of her niece's superior youth and prettiness. She had had her own chances, and had thrown them away, because they were not up to the level of her expectations, and now it galled her to see the lord of the manor at Grace's feet, and to see Grace dallying with her conquest. "'I dare say she thinks him hardly good enough for her,' she thought, she expects some nobleman to fall in love with her wasp waist and her reckless riding. Edward Colchester lingered till nearly luncheon-time. He went to the stables with Sir Alan while Grace was changing her dress, and there was that general overhauling of horseflesh which seems a source of perennial delights even to grooms and lads who have had to bear the heat and burden of bringing the animals out and trotting them up and down. And when the stable inspection was over, Grace was discovered on the terrace in front of the drawing-room, all bloom and freshness in her pretty walking-gown, and, at Mr. Colchester's request, she took him to see the conservatories and that superb collection of chrysanthemums which was the autumnal glory of Darnell Park. "'You'll come, too, won't you, auntie?' said Grace, appealingly. It was but rarely she called Dora auntie, and the unwanted tenderness seemed like a cry of distress. She would have done almost anything to escape a tête-à-tête with the master of the hounds, she who was audacity itself in the field and she trotted up to him to give him little wrinkles as to the whereabouts of foxes. So Dora went to the round of the glass houses, and explained the chrysanthemums to Edward Colchester, who found himself called upon to be interested in the different breeds and rapturous about the Japanese varieties, and attentive to Lady Darnall at every point. It was altogether a disappointing business, and he fell into fearful yawnings before he had done. "'You seem dreadfully sleepy,' said Dora. "'I was at the kennels at a quarter to four,' he murmured apologetically. "'And you are dying to go home for a nap,' said Dora. "'We won't look at any more flowers to-day.' Oh, yes, let me see them all, pleaded Colchester, clinging to a straw, still faintly hoping for a few words alone with grace. But there was no detaching grace from her aunt, and although young Colchester stayed till the luncheon gong sounded, he had to leave at last without having spoken those few words. But it would be in his power to make another opportunity before Sir Alan carried his daughter off to the south if he had made up his mind to speak those words. End of chapter 5